Hey, thanks so much for tuning in to the Leesburg Talk Podcast. You're going to be listening to a recording from our midweek teaching that happens on Wednesday nights while students are meeting from 6.30 to 8 o'clock. The adults have an adult Bible study, and uh, this is a recording of, uh, of their study in Romans. You're always welcome to come and join us in person Wednesday nights from 6.30 to 8. God bless, take care, and enjoy this teaching. Um, we start tonight in Romans chapter... Three, I believe, is where we are. Three, um, verse 21. Does that sound about right? Do y'all know where we were last time we met? I know it's been forever. Um, anyway, that's where we're starting tonight. If you have a Bible, three, chapter 3, verse 21, and we're going to finish. Um, it was? Good. And we're going to finish uh, 21 through 31 uh, t- tonight. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll dive in. God, we come to you now. We thank you so much for the opportunity to be here tonight. God, we thank you for the freedom that we have in this great country to study and read and have access to your word. And Lord, we thank you for what your word does. Your word transforms us by the renewing of our mind. We thank you for that. And as we dive into this uh, chunk of scripture tonight. I pray, Lord, that you speak to us, that you reveal to us your heart. Uh, give us fresh eyes to see, ears to hear. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you press upon us a solid application of this text tonight. We thank you for Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, we titled uh, this section really uh, 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 good news for terrible people, uh, because in chapters one and two and the first part of three, that's really like the case that's been, that's been made. Chapter one, uh, starts off, uh, with, uh, the Gentiles are bad and everybody's like, yeah, yeah, those Gentiles are pretty bad people. Gentiles, that's everyone that's not Jew. And so in this Roman Christian church, they would have been saying, yeah, absolutely, those Gentiles are bad. And then he starts in chapter 2, and he says, well, um, it's important for you to understand that you Jews, you're no better. Right? Your, your ethnicity, your, your heritage really doesn't bring you into much better case. Uh, because by, you know, you, well, you're, you're still on the, the short end of the stick. You're still not living up to what God's decrees are. So the Gentiles are bad, the Jews are bad, that means that everybody's bad. But not us religious people, right? And then chapter 3 starts. And chapter 3 says, well, no, no, even good people, good people are in for an awakening. Religion does not save. See, chapter 3, verses 1 through 20 is dealing with this idea uh, that, yeah, I mean, Jews and Jews, yeah, everybody's bad, but thankfully, we're not like that. We're good religious people. Right, that's the whole section talking about. Well, what good is it to be a Jew and to have the word? And yeah, like you can, like here, here's the the thing that we even struggle with today. You can know the Bible and still not know Jesus. You know what I mean? Uh, one of the leading um, New Testament scholars that's alive today is a guy by the name of Bart Erlman, 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 Eldman, something like that. He's at uh, UNC Chapel Hill, I believe, is where he teaches in a seminary there. Uh, agnostic guy, great New Testament scholar, but doesn't believe in the divinity of Jesus, the death, burial, and resurrection. Like he doesn't believe in, you know, he's just, he's, a, you know, he's wandered from faith. He grew up in a Protestant uh, family and faith system, and he's, in his academic, uh, pers- academic pursuits, he's, 
he's uh, he's started to denounce um, Christianity as well as, as anything other than speculation and um, cultural morality. Uh, and so, of course, he is uh, in a dangerous place there. That's really the problem with a lot of academia now. We talked about that in chapter 2 of Romans. We talked about how there's this cultural push, and we see that in our colleges and universities. And again, <laughs> look at the colleges and universities and academic world, and that's what we're going to see in our culture in 10 years, which is absolutely terrifying. And I was talking to a young man today, uh, one of my old youth group kids. Well, kind of. Uh, he's uh, a couple years behind me. I mean, I, I, I guess I wasn't his youth minister, but when I was a dean at a, at a middle school church camp, at Blue Rush Christian Camp, he was a camper there and a student there and affiliated. Anyway, uh, he, 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 was, he graduated and he was an educator and he was teaching math in a couple of different counties he worked. And he's out of the education system now. And he, at June 5th, he is starting the Kentucky State Police Academy. <laughs> I'll say, what? <laughs> Have you lost your mind? <laughs> you, know? Uh, you know, people hate cops nowadays, right? Like, uh, anyway. I better stop because I'm recording. Um, so, but we were t- in our conversation this afternoon. We were talking about how um, the academic world can really pollute you, and even like today, like uh, again, as parents of kids, right? We we have to understand we, th- our kids are growing up in a society where they're so morbidly introspective. I think I'm convinced that we are causing more issues with our kids because. We're, we are elevating this idea of, 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 of uh, uh, m- uh, mental issues. Um, that's not the right word, but uh, for example, a student comes forward in his, in his classroom. He's now full-time substituting while he's waiting for the police academy. Um, and the student came up and said, hey, I can't, I, can I go in the hallway and do my work? And he said, why? Well, I've got anxiety in a classroom full of people. He's like, dude, one day you're going to work a job. And the hard truth to that is sometimes you just got to suck stuff up. You got to be able to function in society, but we've elevated. Anyway, that's Romans 2 is dealing with that idea of morbid introspective uh, thinking. And then Romans 3 and 1, even the good people are in, in, in trouble with an, or in for an awakening because religion doesn't save you. Going to church doesn't save you. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a happy meal. Like, it, it doesn't work. Jesus warns us himself. He says, one day uh, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did I not go to Leesburg? Didn't I volunteer at the clothing closet? Didn't I go do this and this and this? Didn't I work one week in a month in pediatric purgatory? All for you, Jesus, all for you. And Jesus goes, say, yeah, you did all that, but I don't know who you are. Like, you, got, you got that, didn't you? Yeah, that was good. Um, so now we reach a turning point in this section. Uh, this section of chapter 3, verses 21 through 31 um, kind of takes us back to the manifesto where Paul started in chapter 1, verse 16, the gospel being God's power to save. And, and it's going to begin to unpack it because here's the, here's the thing we need to understand. Uh, t- two realities we need to understand as we start the book of Romans, as we slowly start the book of Romans, I, I, I know, um, we need to understand who God is and who we are. Uh, we need to make sure that we don't ele- 
elevate our self-perception to a dangerous point and think, well, I'm a pretty good dude. And I'm guilty of that. I, I say, look, I'm a pretty moral guy. I'm a pretty good guy. Um, but even in my goodness, uh, I, I'm not enough. Um, good people are in. in so so uh, uh, here, here's how, if you want to kind of break down the book of Romans so far, uh, Romans 1, 16 and 17, the idea there, and I, I didn't put this in your notes, I, I apologize, uh, but the Romans 1, verse 16 and 17, the idea there is that God rescues all believers, um, but only believers. That's something to point out. There's a popular uh, trend today, this idea of uh, the systematic theology word is an, uh, annihilation. It's the idea that God saves, uh, and you're either going to be saved by God, uh, or you're going to be annihilated. And so it's not eternal punishment. It's not a void of eternal reward. It's just your poof gone. Does that make sense? Uh, in the end, uh, it was popularized several years ago with a, a book by Rob Bell called Love Wins, uh, which is a terrible, terrible book, terrible theology, uh, terrible. Um, it, but that's been, I mean, it's a heresy as old as Christianity. Uh, people have, uh, so anyway, that, that's the issue. Uh, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, God rescues all believers, but only believers. And then 18 through 32 of chapter 1, um, uh, this is because he is rightly angry with everyone else. Chapter 1, again, the Gentiles are bad. Gentiles are bad. Chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 8, uh, he's angry with people, uh, including people who have Bibles, including people who are religious insiders. Chapter 3, 9 through 20, uh, so religious insiders and the irreligious outsiders are all by nature under sin. And therefore, one of the things we really have to grapple with is the idea that we are under God's righteous wrath. We are under God's righteous wrath. See, we deserve punishment. Our culture and our society, I made a mistake by putting this in my mouth. Hold on, let me spit it out. Otherwise, I'm going to choke on it. Our society and Christianity today has a hard time uh, grappling with the idea that God is a, a just God who, who hates sin. We've popularized this idea, uh, um, hate the sin but love the sinner. That's very popular, and I understand the motive behind it, but it's not really that biblical. Outside of Jesus Christ, you know how God feels about me? He hates me. I'm under his wrath. <laughs> That's why it's so important that he saved me. And we'll talk more about that. We'll unpack that here in a little bit. Um, Romans has implications for us today because it draws, uh, it draws us to a, into a, a reality that sometimes we mistake where we lose. We have a global problem. The world is not going well, and people are not acting good. We're not uh, evolving. Uh, humanity is not evolving. Society is not evolving. We're devolving. I mean, again, we live in a world where 
Like we're not sure what's a boy and what's a girl. It's de- it's devolving. It's that evolution of thought. Um, so uh, we have a personal problem. Everyone is sinful and under God's wrath. Uh, this is big again because we've so centralized even Christianity to think that you're more that I'm more important than I than I ought to see myself. I mean, you turn on Caleb, and I'm not against Caleb or Christian music. I'm not against it. I, um, it's probably good, it's, but some of the messages you hear on there, and even some of the Christian music, Christian music today, is this idea of you're so special, and the cross of Jesus proves that you're special. You're so loved because look what Jesus did for you. That's almost the opposite of Romans chapter 3. What Romans chapter 3 is going to teach us. You deserve God's wrath. We deserve God's punishment because we are aliens. We are subject to wrath because of our willful rebellion. Um, So, therefore, everyone is part of the problem. No one is part of the solution. We, we've uh, deluded ourselves in Christianity into thinking that, um, man, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty good dude. God's pretty lucky to have me on his team. I'm a pretty charismatic guy. People, tag on, people like me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we, uh, well, well, I, yeah, Jesus died for my sins, but my sins aren't nearly as bad as blanks. What? <laughs> We'll, we'll unpack that more because Paul's really going to hammer that home. The, the, the big thing, the theme, I suppose, in chapter 3, verses 21 through 31 is this idea of justification by faith. Uh, and so let's dive into the passage and then unpack it as we walk. Any questions before we go further? Are we good? That's kind of a recap. We've been gone for a month. So Romans three 21, we'll start. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction. Uh, Let's start by talking about um, the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God, God's righteousness. Uh, when we think about that, we, we, we need to think about righteousness as uh, performance uh, that qualifies or disqualifies you. Uh, performance that qualifies, uh, for example, um, a, a resume. Maybe you filled out a resume or you're hiring somebody. You got to look at a resume. Okay, what are you qualified for? We're hiring a surgeon at our hospital. Uh, are you qualified for that? And they look at me, I'm, well, I cut a deer's guts out. Does that count? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I cut a, I cut a deer. Does that count? I uh, only hit the poop sack a couple times. So, you know, uh, uh, no, they're not going to hire me, right? I'm not qualified for that job, right? Um, or think of a report card. Like a report card tells you that you're qualified to transition uh, perhaps to the next learning level. Um, the righteousness and here, when it comes to 
Christianity and the righteousness of whether or not we're able to stand before God in his presence. Um, Paul says, well, this has now been revealed. The righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophet, the law being the Old Testament writings, the prophets that spoke uh, and bear witness, bore witness to Christ's coming. Uh, um, when we think about righteousness, this idea of uh, how will I be able to stand before a holy and just and righteous God? Uh, we have then two options that usually flesh out in the church today, in Christendom. Uh, the, the first one is behave. Um, well, Romans 1 and 2 have already told us that you all suck. Even the religious people, chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. Like, no one can behave enough. But we try, don't we? And even in this idea of understanding that uh, behave. Uh, well, if I go to church enough and I read the Bible enough and if I pray enough and I do and I do and I do and I do and I do, and I do then God will give, like, he will accept me. Because look what I've done for you, God. Have you, have you experienced that? Have you experienced this idea of, well, I've got to earn God's salvation? Here's how it works out. It comes and says, okay, like I, I know that God saved me by grace, what, you know, whatever. Uh, but uh, I've got to do this and do this and perform and perform and perform and get A's on my report card so that when I stand before him, I can say, God, look what I bring to the table. And, and th this positive outweighs this neg negative, and so hopefully you'll accept me. This is a dangerous teaching that, that penetrates the church, and I think it's by nature we want to be able to do that. But Paul says you can't. B behaving is not going to get you there. We do this religiously. Well, well, go to church every time the door's open. Be a part of Bible studies. Make sure you wear the right clothes. Uh, Make sure you're, 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 you don't have tattoos. Make sure, you know, you know whatever background you're coming from. Or, uh, uh, you know, this is why some people wear full-length dresses and never cut their hair. And this is why some people wear suits and ties. And you must wear a suit and a tie to church. And if you don't, you're going to hell. And as Matt talked about last weekend, maybe, you know, it's why, oh, we don't clap in the church. Uh-uh. You know, you can't clap, you know. Like, this is the house of the Lord. We show reverence here. Well, is it reverence? Is it? Yeah. yeah. Ah, so, there's a religious way of behaving. Um, I mean, again, we can apply this secularly, too. Well, you've got to say the right things, the right hashtags online, the right marches, the right flags, the right, you know, whatever. Like, you do this, you behave, and, you're, and that gains you moral points. So that whatever higher power, higher authority there is will accept you then because of what you bring to the table. That's the first option, behave. The problem is we've sinned. Uh, both the religious and the secular, uh, um, are, uh, they're dead ends when it comes to behaving because behavior doesn't save us. That's why there's such an issue with behavior modification. And as parents, we need to understand this with our children as well. Behavior modification isn't going to fix our kids. If our kids are acting out and being bad, like, yeah, there is some modification that must be required. But we have to take it a step deeper than that. This past week, uh, we were studying uh, Ephesians 5-ish, 6-ish, 
We're talking about uh, fathers don't uh, don't uh, aggravate your kids, lead them to anger, uh, but instead, um, I'm butchering the quote, but you know, five or six talk to fathers don't bring your children to anger, but train them up and positively. Um, well, how does that work? Well, um, let's say you're like like if if my daughter says, "Hey, Dad, I'm going to go play in the middle of the road." Or if I look out and I see her playing in the middle of the road, it is a, absolutely appropriate for me to run and grab her and jerk her out of that r- road as quickly as I can. Why? Because a car's going to come and it's going to hit her, right? But my response should not be, don't play in the road and end with because I say so. Now, sometimes it's because I, say so. I, I tease Amanda about this um, because I, I'm really good at picking fights. Um, <laughs> My wife um, comes from a long line of feminists, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> uh, love them all, and um, they're wonderful women. So, uh, so we got married, and and things are great. And so, of course, thankfully, she is devoted to the Lord, and she reads her Bible. And so we have. You know we don't believe we, we, we don't believe in um, uh, um, egalitarian theology or do- doctrine when it comes to we believe in male roles and female roles and uh, and all that and so um, so we're processing through that as a as a, a newly married couple and uh, we hit a couple roadblocks not with us necessarily but with family uh, which is kind of fun and then um, so long story short. Um, Oh, John, you lost your thoughts. Feminist, feminist, feminist. We dive into the Bible. What was, what was my point? Anybody know my point? Behavior. Oh, behavior modification. Yeah, so, th- but, but because the feminism was kind of bred into her, um, uh, we could be walking down the road, and if I said, duck, you know what you'd do? Why? <laughs> Honey, it's a good thing a bull's not coming toward your head. You'd be gone, you know. So why? So finally, we're, we're generally past that for the most part nowadays. But I swear to you, if I would have said, honey, duck, would, what's going on? No, just duck. Like sometimes with our kids, we need them to respond the way we tell them to because we tell them to. And that's it. But it, it would be poor judgment for the long haul to teach them those principles without explaining the whys behind it. Right? Sometimes you need to respond before you understand why. Does that make sense? So, um, uh, so behavior doesn't save us. I don't know how I got there. You'll have to forgive me there. Um, behavior doesn't save us. We need to train people. Um, I don't know how I got there. Anyway, sorry. I don't know why I was there. Do you know why? Ephesians 5, treat... T- Train them, explain to them, explain to our children why we need stuff. Behavior modification, that's my point. Behavior modification doesn't save us. So just telling them to act differently or do this and don't do this doesn't change and doesn't save and doesn't make an impact on our children unless we teach them the why behind it. You know why I don't want my daughter sleeping around with 14 guys before they're married? Because that's going to have repercussions. She needs to understand that, right? It's not just... Uh, uh, perpetual holiness, purity culture that I want to propagate. Well, I want that, 
but not for that sake. I want because I want her her future marriage and uh, relationships to be healthy and happy and uh, fulfilling. And so I, the why behind it matters largely. But sometimes we teach the respond without the reasoning why, or uh, we focus on the the end game without seeing the the steps to get there. Behavior doesn't save us. Behavior doesn't save us. The second option we have is believe. Uh, righteousness. Um, the righteousness, the, the big thing here is righteousness uh, comes not of, not of us, but of God, right? We need to believe, and when, 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 as we respond to this, as we stand before God, we can either behave and try, hope that our behavior gets there, or we believe that his righteousness that's outside of us can make a difference. And this b- belief is more than just mental affirmation. This belief has practical application in our lives. Uh, Paul's saying here, this righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law in, in Christ. See, see here's, here's the big thing that we need to understand in Christianity today. Jesus behaved. He lived the perfect life that I can't. In full, in full obedience uh, to the Father. He lived, he behaved. I need to believe that his righteousness has been, apart from the law, though the, the law bears witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we need, faith in Jesus. For all who believe, that's our response. There's no distinction. Uh, Jesus behaved, we believe. Manifested, he says. The, the idea here... Um, uh, it been manifested. It, it, it's the picture of a sun coming out after a long, long, uh, dark night. We've been working for righteousness. We, we've heard this idea of do better, do better, try harder, perform more, and then Jesus comes and finally, aha, uh-huh, like the sunrise after a long, dark night. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there's no distinction. I, I think this is, I think this is why superhero movies are so popular in our world today. I mean, think about the, the the nature of these DC Marvel movies. It's always, generally, with the exception of I don't know Batman, uh, but generally, it's the idea of of someone who's part human but more coming in and saving humanity who's hopeless. Um, it's the story of of salvation through Christ, um, and most of them. Uh, point to the gospel in some way, shape, or form. That's a story that we, that we, an outsider coming in to bring rescue. And that's, that's the picture we see here. Again, Romans 1, Gentiles are bad, Jews are bad, Romans 2, Romans 3, 1 through 20, uh, the religious people are bad. We're all hopeless, all terrible people, uh, without exception, everyone is. Uh, but finally, there's righteousness uh, from God. God's righteousness has been revealed uh, through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. There's no distinction. Uh, I think the, the key word here is all. For all who believe, um, there's no distinction. Now, uh, the Jews are bad. The Gentiles are bad. And here's the thing. Uh, all need Jesus. All need to have faith in Jesus. 
In our world today, white people need Jesus. Black people need Jesus. Republicans need Jesus. Democrats need Jesus. Americans need Jesus. Canadians definitely need Jesus. Just kidding. I was talking to a Canadian woman earlier today. I made that joke to her. She didn't think it was funny either. Um, um, Everyone needs Jesus. The only hope we have is Jesus. The same object of faith for all, and that object is Jesus. Not a ritual loyalty, not not uh, uh, loyalty to a movement or a uh, hashtag or a flag. Uh, the only object of faith for salvation is that of Jesus. Now, in church history, there's a guy by the name of Martin Luther. In uh, Romans chapter 3, really rocked his world. Martin Luther uh, grew up uh, in a pretty affluent family, uh, started to go to law school uh, in uh, the 1500s or so, and um, 1600s, and um, uh, he made a commitment uh, to walking home one day in the middle of a lightning storm, and the story goes, he, uh, he said, God, if you get me home, I'll pursue ministry, I'll devote my life to ministry. And he was struck by lightning in that field, and uh, but got home, and ended up going to seminary and became a, a priest, Catholic priest. Uh, at that point, it was the Catholic Church was pretty much it. Uh, he's the father of the of the Protestant Reformation. Um, he became a Catholic priest and started teaching. He's a very uh, uh, educated guy. Started teaching. Um, he took a vow of poverty, a vow of celibacy. Started teaching at a um, uh, seminary, and um, which again shows that you can know the Bible, you can teach the Bible, and still not know the God of the Bible. You know what I mean? Uh, and he and, and and he was tormented with um, with uh, his sin. He wanted so badly to please the Lord, but he was tormented by his sin. The other priests would be frustrated with him because he would come to confession. Uh, and he would spend eight hours in a confessional, ca- you know, and so the person taking his confessions is like, Martin, you got to chill out, dude. Like, you're, you're, you're confessing sins that we're not even sure are sins. Like, you're stepping on ants, and you're like, oh, I killed God's creation. Maybe I need to, you know, like, so he was really over the top. Uh, he, he was tormented with this idea of trying to be perfect. Work, work, work. Earn salvation. I've got to be good enough because I'm not good enough. So I've got, to be, I've got to perform. I've got to perform. I've got to perform. And he found himself teaching the book of Romans in seminary. And, and chapter 3 rocked his world. Again, you can know the Bible and not know Jesus. Uh, but he, the, the, the opposite is not true. You, you can't know Jesus without knowing the Bible. And that's important. Um, in a performance-based relationship, results always have to be met. I mean, think, think about performance-based relationships. We all have those, right? We have a relationship with our employer, and if we're not meeting our objectives as an employee, then the relationship is probably going to have to change. Now, that gets harder and harder in our culture today, but... Uh, um, but think about how dangerous that is in a marriage. We're in a family. Listen, my, my children are my children, not based on their performance. But there are many children in this world who are growing up in homes and are not 
the children of their parents were not called the children of their parents because they don't perform and live up to certain standards or live a certain way, you know? We've all experienced that in some way, shape, or form. In a performance-based relationship, results must be met. Uh, Luther found himself constantly falling short. He was tormented. I mean, you've probably heard the stories of the priests who would whip themselves uh, because they wanted to share in Christ's suffering, and so they would uh, whip themselves. Uh, You've got monastic priests who would go out into the desert and live in isolation for 12, 15 years at a time. There's one guy, there's a there's several guys that did weird stuff. We would call them crazy today, but um, back then they were just religiously devout. Isn't that funny? Um, uh, this one guy I remember reading about, he, he lived on top of a pole, and he would tie himself in for years, and the ropes would burrow into his skin, and maggots would start to develop, and they'd come and try to knock the maggots off of his wounds, and he would stop the sisters from doing that and say, you know, all of God's children need a place to live or something crazy like that. Weird, right? We would put him in a home somewhere today, and we'd say he's nuts, but in the, you know, 12, 1300s, people thought he was wise. Um, um, uh, Martin Luther finds himself reading this, and look what he says. Um, <clears throat> he says, uh, Here, therefore, is the sermon of sermons and the wisdom of heaven, in order that we may believe that our righteousness and our salvation and comfort come to us from outside. It's not about the performance. It's something outside of me that comes in. I can't be good enough. Think of the burden that's lifted when I realize that I can't be good enough. And God saved me despite the fact that I can't be good enough. I mean, that changes how we see things. Uh, In order that we may believe that, though in us dwells not uh, but sin and unrighteousness and folly, we are nevertheless acceptable before God, righteous and holy and wise. This changed his world. In fact, this became um, really the, the split between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. I grew up in Catholic Church, uh, kind of, right? I uh, went to Catholic school. I was an altar boy uh, at uh, the local Catholic Church here. Um, first through fifth grade, I was, I was at the Catholic Church and... Um, Think about how this type of a teaching is different from what the Catholic Church teaches. I'm not justified by confessing my sins to a priest. The Bible teaches that I've got a great high priest, Jesus, who intercedes for me, not a priest. Um, This really was the, the hinge pin for the catalyst for the Protestant Reformation. We're justified by faith, not by penance. We can't earn it. We can't do enough to earn salvation or justification. Justification by faith became the the mantra or the teaching that split the church in the early 16th century. Martin Luther said that this was the issue on which the church stands or falls. Um, It really comes down to two, uh, two, two, uh, theological terms. Uh, Monergism. And synergism, synergism. Um, these are geeky words, 
uh, but they teach two different things, and they're used in theology books. Uh, monergism is the idea that God reaches down, and he does all the work. Synergism is God and I are going to work together. And the best way I've heard this described the difference between is the idea of a child drowning. A couple years ago, Nora was probably, she was two or three, and we went down to Florida with Amanda's grandparents uh, one summer for about a week or so. And in their little retirement community, there's a small pool, uh, probably no longer than this section of chairs. And uh, I mean, it's a smaller pool, but so, so we're, we walk into the, 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 the uh, pooled in area and Nora from an early age and even today has just absolutely no fear. It's terrifying. Uh, I mean, Naya has always been much more reserved. I mean, I, I can look at Naya, like, we'll get in the truck here in the parking lot. And I say, hey, you want to drive the house? And Naya's like, okay. And she's like, slowly putting it in drive and scooting along. And I'm like, honey, push the gas. Let's go. Uh, Nora will sit on my lap and drive. And thankfully, uh, she, I don't let her push the pedals because she's, woo! You know, like, faster, Dad. And I'm like, what's wrong with you? And, and you know, so polar opposites there. Uh but so even as a, as two or three years old, uh, it was. She's fearless. The problem with that is she doesn't know how to swim. We go into this place and we're talking and yakking, and uh, I turn around for two seconds and turn back around and I look in and I see Nora at the bottom of the pool. Well, th- things just got a little exciting. So. Synergism, is I go to the edge of the pool and stick my arm out and say. Nora, grab my arm. And when she doesn't get saved, and Amanda says, well, what happened? I said, well, I tried to save her, but she didn't do her part. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I stuck my arm in, but she didn't grab my arm. I, I went even 90, but she didn't do her 10. And so, well, that's the way it ends. Well, that's not what a good father does, is it? So, I mean, in 0.2 seconds... Uh, me, Mr. Anti-Swimming. I don't like swimming. I don't like swimming pools. Don't like to go swimming. Don't like to sit at the pool. Don't like to be there, all right? I'd much rather be doing something, anything else, than sitting in a pool for hours. But here I am, and I hate getting in the pool because it's always, like, I don't care how clean the water is. I always picture pee. Like, I look at it, and you know what I mean? I'm just like, okay, there's pee there, you know? But here I am. So monergism is God reaches in and saves. God reaches down and he does all the work. And so as a follower would, I jumped in, grabbed her, and I didn't expect her to do her part. She had no part that she could do to save herself. She was hopeless and helpless at the bottom of the pool. Um, Now, yes, I saved her. In our world, did that get me off the hook for letting it happen in the first place? Absolutely not, <laughs> right? So I was still in trouble for that, but that's where the analogy breaks down. All right. Uh, here's the big thing with, with us uh, that we need to understand. God saved us. We don't find God. Uh, God was never lost. This is some of the semantics, some of the jargon that we use uh, that bugs me in the church today. Well, when I found God, you think God was lost? You didn't find God. Or one of the things that really irks me, and I understand what we mean, I think, when we say it. I, I've probably said it myself. 
but when, we, is that when I accept Jesus, when I accepted Jesus, my life changed. Have you heard that? We've probably said it. I've probably said it. Here's my problem with it. The issue isn't about me accepting Jesus. The issue has always been, historically been, God accepting me. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's the point here in Romans chapter 3. God's righteousness has been revealed, and it is be able to be obtained through faith in Jesus. So his righteousness, his behavior is imparted upon me. Not contingent on my behavior. I didn't do anything to save me. I didn't contribute to the equation. I simply received it. Romans 3.22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. You're all terrible, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So let me unpack that further. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yes, God has accepted. That's the big thing. But here's the thing. My salvation doesn't come contingent on me. Right? It's outside of me. It's God's righteousness revealed through Jesus. It's his covenant loyalty. It's his obedience to the Father. It's his sacrificial death and atonement that saves me. So, so often, the gospel is me-focused. That's, that's what I'm trying to bark against. Does that make sense? I'm not the central piece of the story. Does that make sense? That's what I'm trying to convey there. Uh, of course, God's always ready to accept us, right? He has historically accepted us. But we think that salvation comes contingent upon us. Does that make sense? Yeah. We're a passive, like we are, I love that new song that uh, the band did, uh, the I'm Alive song. Have you all downloaded that or whatever? Really neat song, huh? It's on the app. Yeah, it's on the app, believe it or not. That's a cool app. Uh, um, he, he says, I'm, I, I, I'm just a beggar. There's a line, something about I'm just a beggar trying to tell other people where to get bread, right? Like I bring nothing to the table. And, and that's Paul's, Paul's point here in Romans chapter 3. God's righteousness is being revealed through faith in Christ Jesus. It's being bestowed upon us. All have sinned and fall short. No one is good enough. Now, God, here, here's the paradox that we live with in, in Christianity. You've got God's sovereign choice, right? The sovereignty of God. The hand of God stepping into time, time space, and creation in the person and work of Jesus. But we've also got, elsewhere it's taught, about man's responsibility. And Paul will get to that as he fleshes out Romans chapter 3, or the book of Romans. Uh, but here in the beginning we understand that we are not the central character. Our righteousness doesn't save us because our righteousness is non-existent. All have sinned and fall short. Does that make sense? So I, certainly God accepts us, right? Always ready. I know. I, I probably need to clarify that better. No, you're good. You're good. You're good. 
Um, uh, all are, for all have sinned. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of you are worthy, and yet you are justified by his grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. See, the gospel is not about God saving me. It's about God's saving work. God's righteousness revealed. God's power at work saving all those who believe. Um, it was to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, there are several words here that we are going to unpack. Now that we've read that, we want to unpack because they're important words for us to kind of understand. Uh, the first one is sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin, uh, sin is uh, in our thought, our word, our motive, our action. It's missing the mark. You've got sins of omission, things that you uh, ought to do but didn't do. You've got sins of commission, uh, things that you, uh, things that you do, right? Me robbing a bank would be a sin. Me, I don't know. I can't think of things that are appropriate. So, you know, okay, we understand that, right? Sins of omission, sins of commission, things that you ought to do but didn't do, things that you do. Uh, our problem is. We, uh, our, our rule, our metric should be that of perfection. But our problem is that we think competition. Okay? The, the acceptable standard for how much sin can you have in your life to be righteous before God is zero. Perfection. That's what we, that's, that's the actual standard. And yet we operate and live and justify ourselves based on competition and here's how it goes y'all know how, how it is um we we um we all have that one friend and we're like man that dude's trouble <laughs> you, know, you know what i mean like he like i'm better than him and if you don't have that friend you might be that friend right like careful um like like, like we we judge on a sliding scale based on those around us and we're like okay you know um uh, as long as I don't have, as, I'm not as bad as Hitler or Stalin or whatever, uh, uh, Putin nowadays I, is, is, I guess, the thing. Um, that's our problem. See, there, biblically, there are two sides of people, right? There's Jesus who is righteous and everyone else, right? Uh, I, again, I heard this analogy, and it's a picture of the Grand Canyon, right? Anybody been to the Grand Canyon? Impressive hole in the dirt, right? Like, for what holes are, that's pretty impressive. It's big. Um, and so here's the, uh, a picture that was painted. Uh, he said, um, uh, when we think about commission, uh, when we think about uh, competition instead of perfection, he said, picture of this, uh, somebody standing at the, and, you, and you've got a short, plump uh, guy with an 18-inch neck and a 2-inch vertical jump, and he runs to the edge, and he jumps 3 feet and uh, falls down. 
So the next guy in line, he works out a little bit. He's a CrossFitter. You know CrossFit people. Like everybody knows CrossFit people. They walk in the room and CrossFit. So, <laughs> uh, and so, uh, so here we go. Um, uh, this CrossFitter, he stretches and he's warming up and he's uh, ready. He runs and he jumps. He makes six feet. And he's like, oh, dude, I crushed you. I, you know, and everyone's like, oh, cool, look at him. But he, but he still failed. You know what I mean? And then the next person's like an Olympic athlete, right, on steroids, muscles bursting at the seams, and they're like, okay, ready, and running and jumping, everybody else is like, oh, wow, eight feet, and he's like, yeah, set a record for failure. So you're still, it's not enough. Yeah, we, we measure the wrong thing because it's all or nothing, and the problem is we got nothing. We got no righteousness and all the sin. Sin. All have sinned. The next word is justified. In fact, we see several times here in this, in this paragraph, it talks about God is just and the justifier who makes us justified. Uh, justified, just, it's the idea of a legal declaration of righteousness before God. Uh, not perfect. It's not as, um, it's not a moral uh, justified. Like, you're still guilty, right? But you're legally justified. Um, the, the, the picture that's used um, would be a courtroom. You've got a, um, somebody that comes into court and they're under contract. They, they, they owe rent money, all right? We're, we're bound by this contract to pay rent in the first of the month. We haven't paid it for three months. It's stand before the judge, and there's the accuser, the whatever they are, uh, the landlord's saying, hey, look, they haven't paid their money, and the couple sends in and says, yeah, that's true. I haven't paid my money, Your Honor. Uh, I'm, I'm guilty. And the judge says, okay, you're guilty. And the court finds you today guilty. And the judge then gets up from the bench, goes into his chambers, gets money, comes out and gives it to the landlord. They're absolutely guilty, but this debt is to pay off uh, their, their, um, their, 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 what they owe. That's the, their, their debt, thank you. That's the word I was looking for. That is the picture of God being just and the justifier and the one who makes us justified. It's not a moral standing before God. Uh, it's just a legal standing. We're not perfect, but imputed righteousness, righteousness put upon us, um, Puts, puts us in a new uh, a status, legally justified. Not perfect, but heading in that direction. We have two options in Christianity, see. Um, you work for God, and you perform, 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 or Jesus works for you. And that's what Paul's describing here. God's, Jesus' righteousness is placed on you who believe. See, we come empty-handed. And salvation is received by grace through faith. <coughs> God is the just and the justifier. He is the judge who declared me guilty, sinful, deserving of eternal damnation, but makes me righteous by paying the price and puts his righteousness upon me. The next word that's used there in that section is redemption. 
uh, uh, it's tied to the words blood and Passover. And again, what a perfect time of year to consider this on the heels of Easter. What would have been the Jewish Passover of ending up to Easter. Uh, of course, you, as you know, this is the picture of, of the Israelites in bondage in Egypt. And, and the first Passover is God passing over and the blood of the perfect sacrifice covering the doorposts and the lentils of those who uh, uh, were obedient to Moses and, and God's command there. It's a model, uh, a picture of redemption. And now in Jesus, we see that. Um, I mean, the whole Exodus story is really the counterfeit of God's creation. Pharaoh thinks he is God ruling over this kingdom to be worshipped as God in command of all things. Um, the perfect lamb sacrifice in Passover is a picture of Jesus, the perfect son, in perfect obedience, willingly sacrificed, and his blood passes over us. Uh, that leads us to the, the, the next word there is propitiation. This word's used four times in Scripture. It's got a, a somewhat of a debated meaning, but the, here's the, the big idea. It's the turning away of anger by offering a gift. In Jewish circles, I'm sorry, in Gentile uh, pagan circles, it was, um, for example, when, when Jesus says to uh, Peter, uh, who do people say I am? And they said, well, some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're John the Baptist. He says, yeah, but who do you say I am? Do you remember? Uh, they're in Caesarea Philippi when that happens. Now, Caesarea Philippi uh, was like the Las Vegas of the day, right? There, there's all kinds of debauchery happening in Caesarea Philippi. It was a kind of a rough spot. That's where you go. And Jesus is now essentially on a leadership retreat with his core guys in Vegas, all right? You've got temple prostitutes. You've got temples all over the place in Caesarea Philippi where you've got temple prostitutes and you've got pedophilia going on. You've got all kinds of just immoral stuff happening. And, um, and that's where... Uh, Jesus uh, says, okay, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, you're the Christ. Je Jesus said, yeah, you're right. I'm the Christ. And upon that confession, I'm going to build my church. Upon that rock, I'm going to build my church, right? You've heard that. You know that passage. Now, usually when people r read that and hear that, we, we talk about on that, upon that confession of Jesus being the Christ, I'm going to build my church. You've heard that preached before, I'm sure. Uh, but what we sometimes, and he, what he says specifically there is the gates of Hades will not stop it or cease it. Okay? Now, fun fact for you. you can go home and look it up if you want. In Caesarea Philippi, there was a cave, and out of this cave, a body of water ran through it, and they called this uh, cave the, the Gate of Hades. Um, uh, a pagan ritual would happen there. You know, these, these people would always want, again, there's always, we all know in, in, in a, there's a higher power, but sometimes people have gotten confused with this interest as to who the higher power is. So, the, yeah, so, so you'd have all these pagan worships of, you know, um, Aphrodite and all these, you know, what, whatever. Well, well, in Caesarea Philippi, there's this mouth to Hades. I think was, I'm sorry, it's the mouth of Hades, I think body of water running through it and in order to find prosperity every some on some cycle uh or by some sign uh they would offer sacrifices to the gods there and what they would do is they would throw infant children into the mouth of hades uh until the 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 water 
ran out red in order to satisfy the gods there. Horrible picture, right? But that is the setting, the geographic setting, where Jesus says the gates of Hades or the mouth of Hades uh, will not be able to stop it. I mean, think about the, the reality of that. that. That changes the whole meaning of that passage, perhaps, or at least some of the application of that passage. Because why? Well, listen, the sacrifice that once was to, to stop this angry, angry God from destroying your crops or your war or whatever, like, like, like that's now changing because the Christ is here. You know what I mean? It changes a whole nuance to that, to that passage. Propitiation was turning away of anger by a gift. Here's what we need to understand. God is angry by our sin. God's angry by our sin. I'm sorry? Did they find something in that cave? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, but maybe not. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't heard anything, but that doesn't mean. Dead Sea Scrolls were uh, not in Caesarea Philippi. But I don't know. I, I'll, 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 45, 50 years ago? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, the, the, I don't know if I put it in your Bible. Uh, the propitiation, that term is used four times. Did I put anything about that in there? No. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I've got four scriptures that are, that, that are used to, where that word is used. Um, the turning away of anger by a gift. And again, on the heels of Easter, it's important for us to understand. You know, the Bible gives us a few details about crucifixion. Um, and I think that's largely, I mean, what little details we have about crucifixion in the Bible. And there's surprisingly little there uh, about what crucifixion was. But the ancient world saw this. And so, of course, they didn't put in all this details about how it worked and how there's debate as to how they crucify people and all that stuff, but the ancient world saw it. And here's the, excuse me, here's the big thing about it. It was a horrifying experience. The perfect one who lived in perfect obedience to the will of the Father sacrificed his life in a torturous way on the cross. Luther put it this way. He said, the paradox of the gospel is that God loved us even as he hated us. Think about that for a second. God loved us even as he hated us. See, again, the world, uh, we like to think that we are valuable. It might be preached that, well, the cross shows God's love for you. Yeah. It certainly shows God's love for you. Um. Again, I, I read this this past week, and I thought it was important. This guy used an illustration of he and his wife were in Montana or somewhere, and they were on a creek, and they looked down, there's all these river rocks on the creek. And he reached down, and he picked up this river rock and put it in his pocket and took it home. Now, it would be strange for that rock to say to him, well, you, you chose me. You chose me because because you love me so much, so much special. You chose me. Well, no, not really. I, I picked you up. You were a rock. Well, yeah, but God, didn't you see the potential in me? I'm kind of special. 
no, you're you're right. You're like, well, but yeah, but 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 the way I was laying was more graceful or eloquent or what? Well, no, you're you're a rock. I picked you up and I made you my possession, and that's what Romans three teaching here. Like, certainly God loves us. Yes, absolutely. But the focal point is not God's love for me. That's why some of the songs that we sing in Christianity drive me nuts. Because so often in Christian music, the focus is on me. Start counting. I'm going to ruin your worship experience. Sorry. But start counting the times we use me, I, we in, in, a, in a Christian song. Well, is this song about me or about God? Yes, I am made God's possession, but but not because of the way I lay. It's not because I'm special. God has made me his possession. Jesus has made me his possession. This is not about how incredible I am, but how incredible he is. The cross doesn't show us how valuable we are. Jesus' death doesn't show us how valuable we are. It shows how, how valuable he is. That's the point of this gospel is unpacking God's righteousness is revealed through Christ Jesus. And salvation is possible not because you're special, not because you have the right words or say the right things or dress the right way or believe the, saint, the, the right doctrine or theology or whatever. You're saved by God's grace. It's not based on who you are now. Again, there's that sovereign choice versus human response. And Paul's going to get to that. But this first point here is God's power at work salvation. Romans 1, 16 and 17, right? It's, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's God's power at work for salvation for all who believe. And so we have two, two options then as Paul unfolds this. Boast or worship. Look at uh, 3.27. Uh, what then becomes of our boasting? Well, it's excluded. Why? Because you didn't save yourself. You didn't, you didn't bring anything to the table. How can you boast on something you had nothing to do with? It'd be like me being like, oh, yeah, my wife's pretty awesome. She painted this drawing. Look how awesome our painting is or our uh, charcoal is. Look how awesome we did. Didn't we do a good job? Aren't you blessed to have seen how how hard we worked for this? Well, if, if, well who's we? <laughs> we didn't do it. I had no part in that. I mean, I taught her everything she knows, clearly, but I had no part in that. I can't boast on that. It's excluded. Uh, by what kind of law, Paul says? By law of works? No, certainly not. But by the law of faith. Uh... For we hold that the one, uh, that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Uh, now, there's a lot of um, debate tied to the idea of works of the law. Uh, but generally speaking, we need to understand that Paul's saying here, listen, it's not about what you've done. It's not about who you are. It's not about how special you think you are. The reality of chapter 3 is you are not special. God saved you. God works. And so our response is either to boast or to worship. We can either accept God's perfection that's handed to us, or we can compete. The big idea here is, here is salvation is not about us. Salvation is for us. 
salvation is for us. That leads us to a few solas that I think are kind of uh, played out here and throughout the, the book of Romans. Solas, um, these are five things that are tied to the Protestant Reformation. Again, Martin Luther. Um, a sola is Latin for alone. And he starts here in Romans uh, chapter 3, we see um, uh, Scripture alone is the sola scriptura. Uh, the law and the prophets he talks about. The law and the prophets talked about, pointed to Jesus. Uh, the Bible we have today, the New Testament, puts to Jesus. Here's our big understanding we need to understand. Uh, tradition, not tradition or any other authority. It's Scripture alone. Uh, for the Christ follower today in 2022, we need to understand that the ultimate authority in our lives must be, has to be the Word of God. As Paul points out here, the prophets and the, and the, and the, and the law testify to it. We need to understand that the Bible is my authority in all aspects of life. That's what our number one value here at Leesburg. The Bible is our authority. That means that how I feel is second, third, fourth down the line. Because my feelings can be wrong, right? I might feel a certain thing, but it can be wrong. The heart's deceitful above all things, Scripture says. So we live under the authority of the Bible. Number two, grace alone, by his grace as a gift, not human works. I don't know what I'll put on there. Uh, you know, I often get into this debate about baptism because, uh, and we'll get to that in Romans chapter 6. Um. But here's, here's the big thing we need to understand. Jumping, wet, get, jumping in a pool of water does not save you, right? Now, I don't want to diminish the importance of baptism. I often have this debate, and I, I'm in, inwardly in turmoil over that because I see, yeah, absolutely, we're justified and saved by faith alone, by grace alone through faith. But then I see Paul here in just a few chapters is going to talk very heavily about baptism and the importance of, of baptism. In Romans chapter 6, he says in, in Romans chapter 6, he'll talk about how we are joined with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection in the, in the water of baptistry. In 1 Peter chapter 3, he talks about you're, not, you, uh, you're saved by this baptism, not the removal of dirt from your body, but the pledge of a clean conscience to God. There's a physical act of baptism that's a part of the salvific process. We'll get there and we'll hash that out in much detail later on. But... Getting wet is not going to save you. Any more than I've got a family member who I love, is a co-heir in Christ, but bugs the pants off of me because she is convinced, she's, and she will say to me, I cannot believe you're a pastor and you don't have the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I said, I certainly have the Holy Spirit who lives within me. I'm taught that. I see that. I know that's true. Well, have you ever spoken in tongues? Well, if you've never spoken in tongues, you don't have the Spirit. Oh, jeez, here we go, right? So you, you don't think I'm saved? No, not if you're not. Okay, jeez, listen, whatever. All right. By grace alone, not human works. Number three, by faith alone, that, th through faith in Christ Jesus. He is the object of faith. Uh, uh, God, not anyone, anything else. Church, priest, God, not anyone else or anything else. Church, priest, pope, anything. Um, faith alone. Uh, Christ alone. Redemption is in Christ Jesus. Jesus plus nothing. And we'll hash that more out as Romans continues, but here's what we need to understand. Redemption happens. Salvation comes through Jesus alone. 
Now, we have a personal response, but we bring nothing to salvation. And we'll, we'll chew on that more. Uh, to God be the glory alone, no boasting. Uh, only God gets the glory. See, in our world, the winning team likes to talk trash, right? You go to the football game and your team wins and you're walking out of the stadium and somebody's like, oh, dude, we crushed you. We crushed you. We crushed you. But in reality, we didn't crush you, right? You sat there and ate cheese dogs and drank four beers. You didn't crush anyone, right? Uh, you sat there and watched as highly trained athletes had head-on collisions with each other, right? And you did nothing. You didn't contribute to the score. You didn't contribute to the play calling. You didn't contribute to any of the aspects of the game other than you were, were a loud mouth in the stands with your beer. Um, on Team Jesus, we don't do that. We worship, right? And we welcome, we welcome others to join in. See, God works for us, in us, and through us. That's what he gets to here. Our, our response then to, um, to what God has said. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Certainly not. He is not, uh, he is not the God of the Gentiles also. Yes, he is the Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith. Who are the circumcised? That would be the Jews. And the uncircumcised through faith. What's the key point there? It's the faith, right? And th therefore the object of faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, certainly not. Listen, we're, we're saved by what God has done. Does that mean we get rid of the Bible? Well, I don't need that Bible. I'm, I'm saved. Well, certainly not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Why? Because there's an appropriate response to what God has done, but the response is not for salvation. The response is because of salvation. Does that make sense? So I don't run around and, you know, smoke crack and chase women in order to be saved. I don't do those things as a response of being saved. Yeah, so, so we respond to the gospel, right? We're not doing that stuff. Sorry, that's bad, isn't it? Golly, we'll edit that. Um, we... we our, our behavior is not to gain the gospel. It's a response of the gospel. Uh, God works for us, in us, and through us. Um, God works for you at the cross of Jesus. It is received by faith in Jesus through grace. And God puts a new life in you. So why does this matter? Well, there are different types of people and different types of responses to the gospel. There are people who think they are good uh, but instead, they're headed to hell, and then make life hell for everyone else. Think about Paul for a second. Paul, before his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, he lived like that. He thought he was a pretty good guy. He says, in fact, uh, 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 as a way of Pharisee, I was perfect, right? Uh, perfect Pharisee from the line of Pharisees. I uh, upheld the law in perfect in perfection, uh, and yet he was headed toward hell. And he wanted to make health, life hell for other people. That's why he persecuted the church so violently. Uh, that's the first group of people. Then there are people who are trying uh, to be good, uh, who keep trying to be good, work themselves to death for no reason. 
It's, it's, it's a picture of the person who's uh, faithfully serving and giving and being benevolent and, and all that in hopes that I just hope that when I'm before Jesus, my good outweighs my bad. I'm working myself to death for no reason. Then we have people who try to be good, um, but they have a tender conscience and live with anxiety. Oh, I hope, I'm, I hope it's enough, I hope it's enough, I hope it's enough. And then we have people who have no reason to believe that they're going to hell, and they're told otherwise. They say, well, well I was baptized. I mean, it didn't really change anything about my life. I've owned a Bible. You know what I mean? So I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I go to church sometimes. And I, was, I was baptized at some point. They have no reason to believe that they're going to hell. And they're, they're told that they're good because they did this or this or this. But they don't know the God of the Bible. So God works for you, in you, and through you. We see that in the last part of Romans chapter 3 there. Questions, comments? Does that all make sense? All right. We'll pick up in chapter 4 next week. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you that you have done such a great work at saving us and redeeming us. We understand, God, that you are the central character. We're not. We thank you for that. (laughs) We bring nothing and we receive everything. By your grace, we thank you for that. Lord, help us to live in the reality of that, understanding what you've done for us, understanding what you've made us. While we're guilty, um, you set us free. You declared us legally uh, uh, pardoned. We thank you. Lord, help us to be people who point uh, to your grace and your love. Lord, help us not to boast, because we've got nothing to boast for. Instead, Lord, help us to invite people to know you as we've come to know you. We thank you for Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.